Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection. If you already listened to the scripture uh, on the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. Welcome to this special edition of It Simply Isn't Done. That's our podcast, Barry. (laughs) I'm I'm aware. (laughs) And it's when um, we're going to recap pastors unplugged, unrehearsed, unhinged, a little unhinged, more on the podcast than that. Undisciplined. That's likely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And we had our first... Unqualified. (laughs) (laughs) We had our first week of pastors unplugged and unrehearsed at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. And this upcoming week, we have two more. We're back to our regular schedule at 9 and 11. We had a good time. It went quick. It did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could have gone on longer, but... Mercifully. Graciously. (laughs) Or mercifully. We, uh, we cut cut some songs at the end and uh, gave them a blessing and, you know, got on out of there. So. Called it good. Yep, you can listen to the scriptures, which are the scriptures for um, the lectionary of the week in between Christmas and Epiphany. And uh, then you can listen to the Q&A and we'll catch you back here. Our first scripture today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Hear now these words. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, 
Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And from Paul's letter to the Galatian church, chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Hey, these are our podcasting chairs. Yeah, I um, often have to give it a try or two, so that's why I got in while you were reading. <laughs> I forgot to bring your pole vault stick. I know. Sorry. <laughs> Well, our scriptures today were from the Common Lectionary, um, which is a, a calendar that kind of orders our story. So it's kind of the next step in the story after Christmas, just to kind of keep us understanding where we're journeying in Christ's story. But now... Questions. This will be very short if you have none, but we may start asking you some. Do you choose your own topics for your sermons, or are you guided by discipline according to church calendar, or how do you choose your topics? On your own? Thanks, Tom. Well, we do a combination of things. Uh, increasingly, we've been going off lection, okay? So the lectionary is just, was just saying is a it's a series of readings that's laid out. It's a new revised common lectionary that a number of Protestant uh, traditions have put together as a cycle of readings so that over the course of three years, we get about 80% of scripture in, in worship. Um, but we don't feel tied to that. And so if we want to do a series, uh, we'll do a series. Sometimes we pick those and design those ourselves. Other times, 
Um, yeah, there are some other kind of collectives um, or um, organizations that will kind of put some together. Some are like the United Methodist Discipleship Organization or Marsha McPhee has Worship Design Studio and she is another United Methodist who's kind of, um, she's a professor of worship. We use sanctified art sometimes and, and they come with, most of those come with scriptures um, and general themes. We often find that we tend to use our own themes though. We'll use the scripture and kind of use the themes. What, um, what Barry and I have done is what a lot, of, uh, a lot of churches do where we'll take some retreat time, usually in the summer, and plan um, a, a year's worth of worship. And we like to kind of go according, obviously, with our seasons. So we'll have an Advent series and a Lenten series. And we often start fall kickoff with something that we hope can appeal widely to folks who have maybe never been to church before, because that's when people are like school starting again, and people are like, oh, I should, you know, get back from my vacation, get back from up north and kind of plug into church. Um, yeah, there are a few things we kind of generally like to kind of connect with. And regarding themes, a lot of them will come from conversations with you all and what we're kind of journeying with uh, general themes we kind of see in the congregation or our community. And we are, um, we are known to pivot if something's going on in the world that we think it's important for us to talk about as pastors, um, then we will pivot and, and do a, an entirely unplanned kind of a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so we'll, you know, in, the, in that retreat time, um, we'll pray, you know, and we'll kind of look at, hey, what, are, what do you think the Spirit is kind of, you know, calling us to talk about as a congregation, but we won't really distill it finally because it's, you know, you can't really write a sermon a year in advance. Um, so we want to make sure that it's contextual for the time. So we usually put a little more flesh on it a few weeks before. Good question. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Um, oh, we'll come to you, Nancy. Last night, uh, Debbie and I watched the original Color Purple movie. Mm. And... We love those kind of movies because we find out what happens to people over time, the people that struggle and survive, they do well, the people that fail and they fall apart, and then they're sometimes redeemed and all those kinds of things. And that got me thinking, what happened to the Pharisees after Christ was crucified? I mean, did that, did that institution pretty much stay the same? Did it fall? Did it grow? I mean, obviously the followers of Christ grew. What happened to them? Do you know? Do you want to take this? this is, yeah, you well, can go, you can okay. go first. So it's kind of, I have supplemental it's kind of, Yeah, it's kind of a long... Yeah. So, so the background story, the question that uh, Ken is asking is about uh, this is Ken Franklin, by the way. If you say your names, that'd be great. It doesn't hurt for us to know each other. If you don't want to say your name, that's fine. Um, Ken, um, so at the time of Jesus, there were three dominant sects. That's a hard word for me to say. Sects within Judaism. So Pharisees, 
Sadducees, and then a desert sect called the Essenes. They were responsible for what we now know to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived out in the desert, um, and their primary mission was to copy scripture and the documents that put their, their own little community of Jews together and, and the rules they went by. So the Pharisees and the Essenes um, were groups that were, that were both fully uh, Semitic and, and Jewish communities, divided, um, most well-known division is, is how they understood life after death. Um, and the, both, to our knowledge, those two groups went on. The Essenes seem to have been um, being one of the one of the sacrifices of the Roman government being very close to where they where they lived in proximity, um, but that's a great Bible study conversation we can have. Pharisees, you want to pick up from there? Yeah, well, I think to add to what you're saying, I I don't know the word denomination isn't exactly appropriate, but I think um, like the word sect, kind of like streams of understanding. Yeah. Kind of like with a lot of the ways we've organized religious authority, um, I understand it to be more of a slow fizzle. <laughs> a slow fizzle in kind of the understanding where um, there was still rabbis who would take authority over interpreting scripture, um, but less of an enforcement role than we would understand um, the Pharisees to really have. Right? So just over time, kind of how we see over the hundreds of years, um, the transition from plural gods into monotheism and from Israelites into Jews, the continual um, progression of the faith, especially after consistently being in war and being in diaspora, changed and evolved such that the, the understanding of who holds authority as the Pharisees kind of fell apart due to many of those conflicts. And it became groups of rabbis that would, that would have and write for the Talmud and, and keep interpreting in that particular way. So the interpretation stream stayed. Some of the enforcement faded away and was dependent upon within communities, especially as synagogues grew and became more popular. So synagogues were around in Jesus' time. Um, but there was still some internal turmoil and dispute about that because there were still folks who were like, well, what's up with the temple then? Why do we have the temple if we have these synagogues? Um, isn't God supposed to live in the temple? What's up with these houses of worship? So there is just an interesting evolution of Judaism at the same point uh, that Jesus, you know, was, was experiencing life here. I don't, I don't know if that's like, you know. We didn't ask for a four-hour lecture, but you guys encapsulated it very well. Somebody write that down. Somebody note it. Uh, the, the, only other, the only other thing I, I would add is that um, there were also cultural dynamics going on at the same time. So while the divisions may have been very important to parents and grandparents, they became less important with each, each generation and intermarriage happened. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, the Jews started dividing into other parts of the world. There's not a direct connection, for instance, between Pharisees and Ashkenazis. Uh, but but a, a lot of things are happening at the same time. So what used to be a, a pure sense of what was Pharisee and Sadducee, uh, sort of diluted over, or diluted over time as it became less and less important to the younger generations. 
Sounds familiar, right? Not really a question, but a comment. Uh, thanking the musical leadership of the yeah. church. So uh, I wanted to pass that along. And also, I guess in that regard, my question would be, could you speak to the, the use uh, and background of music in Christianity? Wow. I didn't hear the question. A general thanks to our musical leadership. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. You can just have a little wave. <laughs> and then New Life um, has, the, has the week off. Um, but yes, we'll, we'll make sure to pass that Absolutely. along. And then the general use of music in Christianity, which this will be fun because we're really having a whole series about this starting on the 14th. What would you say first? Oh, I would say that, that music is part, has been part of the worship heritage of the Jewish tradition and then the Christian tradition growing out of that. Um, we have learned the faith, we have sung the faith in worship, um, and, and the musicians have led us in that. But, but in both the Jewish tradition and the Christian traditions, singing in worship has been vital to us. Wesley, if you ever check out the uh, front pages of the hymnal, there's some wonderful instructions for singing that none of you have read apparently, because it talks about singing with gusto. No, I think it says sing lustily, lustily. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you Gust can check out a hymnal right now and Gust call me out on that. Gustily and lustily. <laughs> Something that I think is interesting uh, is uh, this church is not excluded, although it's not as much of a deal, but in other churches, there's often a fight between services about whose music is um, more holy. And what I find fascinating about that is that, frankly, the guitar is a much more traditional instrument um, or, or remnants of the guitar uh, for singing psalms and all sorts of things. So when people say, I only like the traditional, it's like, okay, well, what are you talking about? Because you mean traditional from the last 300 years. You mean traditional with organs, which is obviously a much more <laughs> intense instrument that you couldn't kind of lug, lug along thousands of years ago. So it's an interesting thing that people often have um, a deep affinity for, and we try to make space for what all of that looks like, for having kind of what some folks would understand as traditional, traditional in our Anglo heritage, um, and the new or different expressions of music. And our hope is that um, we don't make them idols unto themselves, but we just find a place that resonates with us, right? We find what resonates, um, not to the exclusion of participating in other community, but um, in, in hopes that it helps bolster our own, you know, spiritual life and our worship practice. That was my own, that's my own soapbox there, Eric, sorry. <laughs> Nancy. And then over to Pat. Um, well, this, <laughs> this came just before the scripture that you read today. Um, it's in Galatians. Am I too close, too far? It might close? be where you're standing. Yeah, it's where you're standing, but that's okay. We'll, we'll tough it out. <laughs> okay. What would happen if I sat down? Well, why don't you try it? How's that? That's wonderful. Kind of the same, but that's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is from Galatians. I'm still having some trouble. <laughs> anyway. Can you hear me? No. I'll, okay. I, I can hear you and I'll repeat it. How about that, Nancy? I'll try again. Okay. okay. This is just before our scripture, and there's a place in the Bible 
the reason I'm interested in this, I actually have it highlighted. This is my own Bible. So, and this is it. It is, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, my question is, is this one of the reasons or one of the things we can fall back on in the fact that we accept everyone at Chapel Hill? That's my one question. Then my second question is, how does that uh, relate to what's happening in the world today? I know this is a lot to ask, but... Is there anything specific in the world today you want to lift up? <laughs> well, no, I mean, in, just in general, but the first thing is, you know, we do, we are very inclusive. We don't exclude anyone. And I'm just wondering if this Bible passage gives credence to that. So, I don't know, take it from there. <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a place where it's a place where we are instructed that um, as much as we may think we're all that, we're not. Whoever we are, that we're, we're part of a, a much larger community um, and that it's our responsibility to be mindful that we are all, we are all ultimately one community. Um, what does it have to do with the world? Well, the, the world is, has always been pretty awful and that's why uh, Jesus has been very clear about the kingdom of God being an alternative empire that doesn't follow the same rules and that all the divisions that we make as nations, as cultures, as uh, religious institutions, they may be really interesting but they're quite beside the point of what Jesus is trying to do and uh, what God ultimately intends for us. And I think too, um, you know, context is always important with scripture, no matter what. So I think understanding the context is helpful. And Paul, um, writing to the people of Galatia, they were having a really big uh, problem between folks who were Gentile and folks who were Jew. There was a lot of arguing whether adult men had to become circumcised, and they were like, no, thank you. <laughs> Can I still be a Christian without that? And others were saying, no, you can't. You must follow the law. You must follow the law to a T. Um, and so there was this kind of inner turmoil of, do you have to convert to Judaism in order to be Christian? Paul, um, who was Jewish, was trying to answer that because he was writing directly to these people. So we can apply that broadly today, but uh, you know what Barry's lesson that he extrapolated from that is still true because Paul was saying, hey, y'all, quit trying to make lines between yourselves and to divide each other further and to have gatekeeping and to prevent people from knowing God. What you're doing is ultimately preventing people from knowing God and us contributing in God's life together. So knock it off. You know, the, the, these divisions, they're not as pertinent as you think they are. That's three questions. I think you've had to <laughs> Yes, Nancy. <laughs> um, over the past, I don't know, year or so, I've been curious about communion liturgy. 
and I notice that it has changed for us. It's most of it. It's shorter than it used to be, or there have been some things have been omitted, and I'm just curious as to to how you made that decision or uh, why the change. Yeah, we'll actually have that coming up on Epiphany. Um, what we end up doing is either writing or sourcing um, communion liturgy that connects thematically with what we're doing. Sometimes um, we like to keep kind of the traditional United Methodist communion liturgy and to kind of keep it exactly as it is. And we find that as a comfort to folks. And we know that, um, you know, like that's, that's how we pattern a lot of the nine o'clock service, right? Is to kind of, hey, let's use this traditional liturgy. Um, and people find comfort kind of in that same ritual and knowing exactly what's happening. Um, oftentimes in the 11 o'clock service, we'll be a little more experimental. And on communion Sundays, we kind of apply that to both. Um, and we like to use words that might make people think about what we're saying, not just say them with us. So we keep the elements that we kind of need to keep. We keep the greeting, we talk about the meal, and we have the epiclesis. That's that part where the pastor does the official, like, hey, pour out your Holy Spirit. Um, but those are the elements we really need, technically, for us to kind of have communion happen. That's something we take pretty seriously with our orders. Um, other than that, I don't know that we feel necessarily beholden. Um, I'm a bit, I would say I'm probably a bit more of a traditionalist with communion liturgy. Um, and that I really, uh, I like, and frankly, in seminary, I just had to memorize it. So I, it's what comes most naturally to me. But I find that I'm often pushed and challenged um, by looking at denominations where we share similar theology or um, understanding uh, communion out of the box of the denominational label we try to put it in, because many of you are, were not raised United Methodist. Many of you, um, you know, can be a part of that liturgy, but don't necessarily resonate with it in the same way. What would you say, Pastor? Um, yeah, I would say all of that. I would say um, there are pragmatic things. Uh, one is that y'all really don't like to sit here for more than an hour. Oh, yeah. That is very Methodist. <laughs> um, yeah, and, it, yeah, and that is more Methodist than anything. Yeah. So um, the, the communion liturgy of the United Methodist Church, which is, the, which is part of the doctrinal work of the church, is what we're supposed to be doing. It's part of the, the order of worship that, that uh, pastors commit to. And it's, and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it's long. Uh, if we do the whole thing, it really includes uh, sung responses. It includes full confession, uh, and it f includes full absolution. And again, those are lovely things, and they take explanation. What we do every Sunday morning uh, includes teaching and it includes proclamation. Uh, to teach the communion liturgy on a regular basis because this place changes every week and who even knows who's out there uh, watching from homeland. Um, so it's a lot of things we, we put together and we have to make decisions each week about what makes the most sense, or each month I should say, what makes the most sense to go into the communion liturgy that particular week. So there's been nothing, Pat, where we have, you know, gotten together and gone, ha, 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 let's rip this communion liturgy apart and rebuild it in our way. 
Um, it's not that. We think there are some fundamental theolo theological pieces that need to be there. Um, and per, I think both of us love the, con the confession and absolution pieces. They tend to be long, and frankly, they are not universally loved. They are not. And so we consider, um, if this is to be a means of grace, a means of God's grace, this month, like what, is, what will make this the means of grace? We're more accessible. We would rather have people feel like they can encounter communion, because a lot of folks have baggage about communion. We'd rather feel like we, we have people that feel like they can encounter and be a part of and taste and see that God is good um, than to drown folks in liturgy. That said, sometimes we do do that, so we just kind of do a mix. Yeah, just just use that line, uh, means of grace. So, so for the United Methodist Church, baptism and communion are the two sacraments, the two things that Jesus did that we consider to be consistently means of grace, whether you understand them or not, the very participation in those uh, are direct means of grace where God is made known to you and you to God. Hey, Barry, it's Joe. Hey, Joe. Nice to see you. I Hi, guess, Joe. I guess it's Joe. <laughs> hey, Barry, over the years, you've, you've given hundreds of sermons. And um, before you leave, are we going to have like a Best of Barry series? Oh, that would be great. Yes. Uh, that would be great. Who would, yes. Who would not love that? There are some VHS tapes in the office from the 90s. I'd be happy to lend them to you, Joe. We could bring back Barry with a mullet. <laughs> So, so that does, it does beg a question, because people ask that every now and again. Uh, no, I'm not planning on the best of Barry, just so you know. Um, but we've certainly evolved together, right? Um, my preaching is different than it was when I came 23 years ago. And uh, folks that are, that are new or have managed to, managed to ignore this, um, I, I will be leaving Chapel Hill, and I think June 9th is my last Sunday here. And um, so, so there's been lots of introspection about what, you know, what, that's, what that's been. And every place a pastor goes is, is, uh, is growing ground, and this has been growing ground for me in preaching, and I, and I trust it has been and will be for Jess as well. Um, which is why you give me feedback on worship and messages uh, is really important. Yeah, and I anticipate this is kind of venturing a little bit into next week's territory, um, but we're, uh, appointment season starts in earnest tomorrow, um, apparently, <laughs> probably the second. Um, but as soon as we have a little more information about where Barry might be going and who might be coming, we're going to have a series of kind of events where we can do some processing of what this transition looks like, part of our strategic planning, um, which, which will start soon. Um, we'll go into that too. So we'll have some time to do some processing. We're not just going to let him, you know, fade away. <laughs> go, go into that We're going to celebrate you like <laughs> face on a cake. Mm-hmm. Minor. And let's see, I've been working with a therapist, no surprise, and his advice, along with my desire, was to not watch the news. Mm -hmm. And 
what we talked about is, you know, back in the day, we only heard about what was going on locally, really. And so I guess my question is, well, first of all, I think in general people are pretty much the same around the world. I think it's the leadership that is the issue. And I'm wondering what guidance you give us on what we can do locally without, you know, getting so involved in some of the huge world issues. Because I really can't do anything about that. Not really. Mm. Yeah, that has been on a lot of folks' uh, hearts and minds. I know both of us have had conversations with folks in groups and individually about that. Um, and there's this interesting struggle where we are a society that really values staying informed and we're also living in a time where truth is hard to discern, particularly via media, so that becomes complicated. Um, and I, I can't recall where I heard this phrase, but it has really resonated with me that I don't want to be a consumer of war. I don't want to be a consumer of trauma. I want to be aware of what's happening, but not to the level where I feel like it's consumption, because um, that doesn't feel healthy for me. Um, and and I, like you said, I, I can't make a huge contribution. I will say one of my responses to that is, um, you know, like I, I, can, I can handle listening to NPR's Up First for 15 minutes every morning. Like, I can do that. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I'm not sure with, you know, what I'm seeing, if it's accurate or not, or what's going on. So plugging in here and building community here and relationship here has been personally um, immensely helpful for me. And I think that's one of the functions of church. So I think some of it is doing, plugging into the things we already do helping folks get housing. There is no reason. There is no reason there should be folks that are unhoused chronically in our community. We have the resources. We don't have the education or the will. And that's something we can work on. We can work on education and will. Um, there's, there's no reason that we have veterans coming back that are facing the highest suicide rates that we've ever seen. Right? Like we, can, we can do something about that here because we have two VA hospitals pretty close. There are ways that we can plug into some of the, the ministries that we have happening in our own community, and not just here at Chapel Hill, because churches tend to silo themselves a lot. There's a lot we can do and partner with other churches to say, hey, what would it look like? What would it look like to come together um, in spaces that we can and really make a difference in our community? And so I would encourage you... Um, Barry and I, this is a thing I say, but I think you'd co-sign it, is that we really, we're not your camp counselors. <laughs> like, we're not, we're not your program directors. What we want to do is enable and lead folks into where the spirit is nudging. So if you feel the spirit nudging you into a particular kind of ministry, we want to figure out how to channel that and to use resources and to get us into that place so we can support you because you all are the church. We're happy to do our leading and fulfill our role of kind of shepherding and you know, taking us where we need to be. And um, you all being able to, to recognize where the Spirit's pushing you is, is really how the church does anything. And we, we see that. We see that with your response to refugee resettlement. We see that whenever there's a call for anything, this church is so faithful. Oh, it's 1057. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> But there's nothing after this, so we can, you know, everybody wants, ha -ha. To, go, everybody wants to go another By the hour. way, you're going to be here till 11.59 yeah. p.m. We're I'm, ringing in the new year together. <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> hey, thanks, Eric. I don't have a watch on. 
What say you, Pastor? Is there one waiting? Let's okay. have one more, then let's sing a song, and then we'll bless you and we'll go. How about that? Is That's it okay good. if I ask another question? Well, you have the mic, Pat. Well, I'm just asking. Um, progressive theology, how does it differ from those maybe who have joined the global Methodist church, or how does it, how is progressive, the, explain progressive theology. <laughs> well, sort of. Yeah, well. well, it's 1057. Um, Pat, um, seriously, I think, I think that relates well to the church, the questions that we're doing next week. Um, so we're gonna put it off till next week. That seemed reasonable. Yeah. And, you know, we've done this in leadership before. There are kind of four main tenets of what makes something, you know, kind of progressive in the theological stream, and we'd be happy. We'd be happy to chat about it. How about that? Welcome back. Welcome back. Here we are. So um, we had, uh, I don't know, I guess we had four or five people ask questions. Mm-hmm. And we had a, I think we had a couple of questions that were, that came in from at home. I'm not certain of that, but I think so. Yeah, I think so too. What'd you think of them? Uh, yeah, so, so we were trying to focus on questions of theology, belief, Faith, hope, love, all that good stuff. All that good um, stuff. Because we're holding the questions about this church, about the United Methodist Church, about the Church Universal with a capital C. Um, we're holding those for this coming week. So, yeah. What, were there any questions that surprised you? I think Ken's Pharisee Sadducee question surprised me. We're getting into the nitty gritty, and I love it. Yeah. yeah it tested my memory. Yeah, I know that's that's always fun, um, and it's it it's interesting because it also made me think about how, when we consider history, particularly you know history of the ancient Near East for Christians, you know history of the Bible, we tend to think that people were monolithic, and we forget they're just like people today, and there are all these different streams and expressions you know of of faith and how we live, um, and and ethnic identity. Um, it's so that just made me consider how often we like to simplify it to learn about it, but then we we don't often add back in the complexity. Yeah, and and particularly so much of our gospel uh, tradition is centered on Pharisees being grouped in ways that are not helpful. Yeah, so our gospel tradition. Um, tends to group the Pharisees in with other characters that we we don't necessarily honor. And so we get this sense um, within our own tradition that the Pharisaic movement was not a good movement or that Jesus was against the Pharisees. Uh, We hear something less about the Sadducees. So it was a fascinating conversation, and I hope... I hope we find a way to loop back in in, in a class to talk about that. Yeah, that'd be that fun. That tradition. Yeah. Were there any questions that surprised you? Well, I was surprised by uh, the question of, that was directed d- directly to me. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> um, that had to do with my leaving, and uh, so we were able to deflect that, I think. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And I feel like a jerk for being like, uh, Joe, what about me? But it was really a question for you. Such is life. <laughs> and maybe we will do a Barry's Greatest Hits. Who knows? Who knows if it'll be your sermons, if it'll be your haircuts, your stoles, your funny pictures. We, my, to, my dad jokes. Your dad jokes. My song bits and pieces, my film references. Yeah, there's a lot we could do there. there. There's a lot to pick on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we also had two folks write questions on their connect card and turn them in and they're really related to the topic um of last week so i thought we could maybe sure. kind of tackle them here acknowledging that um deacon pat asked a question about progressive theology that we are going to wait for for next week because it does kind of relate to us as a congregation and the united methodist church as a whole but these two questions are um are a little bit different so this is from Dorothy. Um, what is the Protestant view on saints and miracles? And we asked this question uh, around staff meeting, and, and we kind of noted the inherent contradiction within our faith in that we don't, you know, Protestants don't recognize or officially name folks as saints, and we don't officially have a body that would name miracles Yet we have plenty of churches named after saints. <laughs> we have, you know, St. Luke, St. Paul. So it's kind of interesting, um, our relationship that really lies mostly in tradition rather than continuing practice. Yeah, I think, I think our churches are largely centered on the apostolic saints. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. Paul is the... You just throw them in there because how can you not? <laughs> well, we it went out, I mean, we consider them the writers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's why we do that. But you know, we don't have the whole pantheon of uh, of saints uh, that we draw from. Um, having said that, we do understand that that all those who follow Christ are saints. It's the sainthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Um, because we share the ministry of all believers, and mm-hmm. so feel like this this relationship with with God puts us in a place where we are sainted, and we we do that every year uh, on All Saints Sunday. We we don't distinguish some people as saints and others not. Yeah, though it might be, may be tempting. <laughs> Yeah, you might come from a tradition um, like the Roman Catholics where they have All Saints Day and then they have All Souls Day. And on All Souls Day, that's the time that you remember your loved ones that have been lost within the year or generally who were part of the church. Whereas in many Protestant traditions, um, including ours, the Methodist Church, we just have All Saints Day. That's when we kind of take time to do that. And then Halloween, you know, which is really more popular. Yes, love, love a good Halloween. Actually, Halloween first, All Hallows Eve. All Hallows Eve. Yeah, I saw a lot more people talking about how uh, Halloween is a Christian holiday this year, yeah. um, because we tend to forget that, and then there are a bunch of Protestant denominations that are like, well, let's have a harvest festival instead, which is kind of funny because that's what the pagans did initially. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Any rate, sure. what about miracles, Bear? Well, you know that that's a question that I would have I would have begged 
a question in response uh, and ask the asker what what they mean by a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if 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 by miracle what we mean are there things that we believe happened at the hand of God that is outside of the natural order, um, that that is supernatural and done directly at the will of God for this particular moment, for this particular occasion. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything in our faith tradition that precludes that. I would also say that there's nothing in our faith tradition that necessitates that. Yeah. I fall, like, in a similar place just personally. Like, yeah, Dad, sure. I have no idea. I'm not going to say anything about, you know, what God can't do. I think that's foolhardy. And at the same time, I think we can get ourselves um, in a sticky theological place when we make assumptions about God's will and God's, you know, desire to intervene in particular situations. Like, it it just, it becomes kind of hard. And it gets, it gets really hard when you're not on the receiving end yeah. of a miracle. And um, because we associate, you know, it comes a lot with asking for God's blessing. And we assume that God's blessing means God's favor and you have done something correctly. And we have a really hard time um, saying like, hey, I'm, I'm not really sure um, God works that simply or algebraically. God might, uh, but that's not what I typically see. So it's it's interesting to be in this space of, uh, yeah, God can God can do anything. And in my lived experience, um, what do I know of the character of God and, and how do I understand God to be working? And knowing that there's a wide diversity of what that looks like amongst people. Yeah. And, and, and I say to myself, well, if we don't know as called out clergy who does um and i stand i think very much where you are in a place of deep care when we claim something as the hand of god um for a particular person or for a particular group in contradiction to contradistinction to another particular person or another particular group so when we say uh god bless Mm -hmm. you or god bless this nation uh, it tends to be a statement about your value or the nation's value vis-a-vis others that god favors us in a particular way or that we've 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 done something right in our faith we 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 know how to do this and it's hard because we see the Israelites um, and then later Jews and then later Christians really struggling with that idea all throughout scripture yeah. of uh, can I win God's favor? Can I win God's blessing? And over and over and over we see humans writing, this is what I did to win God's blessing. And, and most commonly God's like, you already have it. You already have it. Can you just live right together? Can you just love each other? Um, so it's, it's really the story of our people to ask these kinds of questions. Um, but I think to circle back, I mean, obviously we don't have this, just like we don't have the body that would declare saints, we don't have a body that would, like, like the Catholic Church does, that would get together to affirm a specific miracle. And there are some other traditions that do that as well, not just the Roman Catholics. 
Um, but like Barry said, I mean, who, who knows what God's up to? Are there, there are plenty of things we cannot explain with the technology we currently have that might be divinely inspired by some way, just in the same way that uh, there's a lot of things we can explain through technology that I think are divinely inspired. Yeah, we run into that space where as our technologies get bigger and more effective, we run the risk of making our God ever smaller yeah. if we leave God with leftover pieces that we don't understand. I know, right? <laughs> if we can't understand it, it must be God. <laughs> Which, like, it's funny because there's plenty that probably is God that we don't understand, but I'm not sure the box around it is, is the part that's problematic. Yeah. 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 That was a very thought-provoking question. Here's another one. This one's a doozy, and it's going to require uh, some backup. A doozy. A doozy. Um, so we're going to have to back you know, up You know and where start... that comes from, right? No. It's a Duesenberg. Oh. Automobile. That's a doozy because it, it was always the biggest, the, the best car, and it was a doozy. I did Duesenberg. not know that. You know. What a fun fact. Fun facts to know and tell. Come see your pastors. Duesen, Duesenberg. Duesenberg. All right. Doozy. I might look that up later. I hope it's true. <laughs> Fun sentences, <laughs> or maybe facts from your pastors. <laughs> I'm sure it is. If not, it should be. All right. So this question is: A few weeks ago, both pastors alluded to hope of universal reconciliation. A regular objection to this is: How is justice given to the oppressed if all are reconciled? How do both pastors think about this conundrum? Oh, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> this is from friend of the pod, Drew. <laughs> and um, to back up a little bit, to put this in some context, we have during the 10 o'clock hour this, this thing called Chapel Chat, um, where we're able to get into a little bit more in-depth conversation. And one of the folks in there kind of brought up, hey, I had recently learned that while... Re, uh, that while the church as of late, um, the global church has really adopted this idea that Jesus had to have, uh, Jesus' whole point was to die for our sins as a sacrifice and to take them away, um, which is kind of uh, understood in a, in a larger phrase as substitutionary atonement. Um, this person was like, I've learned there's another way that has been the way that the church has understood it much longer, yeah. which is Christus Victor, meaning right. that Jesus came to be victorious over evil. And, and there's a little bit of a distinction. And then we were like, <laughs> buckle up. Because <laughs> there's a lot of theories of atonement. Yes, there are. There are uh, many. And there are probably seven or eight that are scholarly enough with enough work around them that we can talk about them and kind of offer them. Um, but there are, there are quite a few and we both kind of shared, you know, uh, you know, we're not really sure we buy into to either of those listed necessarily. And that got into a long conversation about how, like many mainline Protestant seminary trained pastors, we don't find a lot of uh, scriptural evidence or faith evidence for a literal hell. And that led to this question. So if you don't believe in a literal hell, that implies some level of universalism. So maybe we could just start there and then work our way into it. Let's say you. Sure. Let's <laughs> give it a try. It's kind of going, yeah. Well, let's see where it goes. Yeah. Why not? 
we 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 reserve the right to revisit this. So, do you want to start with hell? Or do you want to start with universalism? Well, let's start with universalism because I okay. think that that works. That makes a little more sense to them backwards. Backwards enter into hell. <laughs> yeah. So, so at at heart, for those of you who who are kind of trying to figure out what we're talking about, atonement um, is a big theological concept, and for our purposes here, I think it's fair to talk about it as as what what is ours to do? What is God's to do in this bringing humanity and the divine back together? Um, because there's been a significant schism between God's intent in creation and, and where the world and where individuals within that world have shown up. Fair, fair, is that a fair kind of setup? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, in theology, like many areas of academic study, we just choose to use, like, these really big words, and we don't really have other words that, that kind of explain them as well. But yeah, all of this is just trying to sort out like what, what was the point of Jesus, right? What was the point? Why, why was Jesus here? What was the point? Maybe. What are some guesses we could understand as to why Jesus was here? Why would the divine become incarnate? Um, so that's kind of, I think, where uh, knowing the story, knowing that we have Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what do we, what do, we do with that and how do we kind of make sense of it? Yes. <laughs> I, I was just, I was, I was going through in my head how, uh, how heretical we really want to be on a, <laughs> on a public podcast. <laughs> well, nothing stopped us before. So why, why stop now? If you haven't been called a heretic in 2024, I mean, what are you really doing? That's right. I'm, I'm behind a day. <laughs> yeah. So universalism essentially says that whatever happened in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, minimally, it meant um, it meant the salvation of all of humanity. Now, hanging on the word salvation is where we're, we're going to find a lot of disagreement. Yeah. For universalists, it would be that in in that life, death, and resurrection, God affected the salvation of all of humanity. So we, another big um, theological word is that we have all been redeemed, which is which is a, a concept that goes back to sacrificial cults and the um, the the needing to give a sacrifice for our sins. Um, and universalism would say that in in that story of Jesus and resurrection, um, God enacted our redemption. And the problem has been that we don't live as a people redeemed. Mm-hmm. We are redeemed. We don't live as a people redeemed. We don't accept that redemption. Um, I would fall in that, in that camp with lots and lots of places where I want to do explanation and 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 continue to live my life um, understanding what that what that means what does it mean to live as a as a people and as an individual redeemed but I cannot find uh, even even in our own Wesleyan tradition enough there that convinces me that that 
single act of God did not take care of it as far as God was concerned. Mm-hmm. And the I I would agree, and I would add, I would add the word that um that really compels me in this, and it's it's reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That that's in addition to salvation. Um, for me, you know, what are we being saved from? Right, that's kind of where we have to go in looking at that. And there's a big part of that that means uh, saved from ourselves, you know, <laughs> and being reconciled to the rest of humanity and our earth um, and God, and and that that is a, a big part of it for me as well. And I would add that, um, you know, like we're we're incredibly humble about this, and that we've spent a lot of time studying um we've spent a lot of time being quizzed on by not only our um seminaries you know but boards of accreditation and uh it's very humbly we submit this <laughs> realizing like hey if i'm going to be wrong which i'm going to at some points i'd i'd more likely to be wrong on the side of this kind of hopeful understanding of god being able um to reconcile all things and all people Right. It, it, when presented with the options, like I would say I'm a hopeful universalist and that that's where scripture and my understanding of the character of God leads me. Um, I'm not 100 percent certain about anything, you know, but that's that's where I really feel drawn and compelled um, because I have serious questions uh, about what what does it mean about God and some of the other models? Yeah. Yeah. I tend not to hang on the saved from. Um, I think, by and large, all of the traditional theories of atonement uh, are are tied to some understanding of saved from. Yeah. Saved from ourselves, saved from hell, saved from evil. Mm-hmm. Um, in whatever ways they manifest themselves, as our as our <laughs> baptismal uh, new members covenant says, uh, I I think that God is much more interested in what we are saved for. Sure, um, feels very Protestant. <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. I I, th- I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's that. Um, I, th- I think it's why Wesley talks about that balance of of um of uh personal piety and social holiness those are both ways in which we we live out our saved for we're saved for our own relationship with god which is a which is create a creative relationship where we we embrace the spark of the divine but also we're saved for uh and as a gift to the world in social holiness and maybe that's where the justice question comes in uh, as drew as drew asks it yeah well and that makes me think okay because um, that's what that question is pointing to is if you don't believe um in a in a version of hell then what does accountability look like so i'd love to go back into kind of the why why two pastors are gathering on a podcast saying they don't believe in hell <laughs> And I've thought about this, um, I've thought about this quite a lot because I, I come, you know, I'm half Irish Catholic, right? So there's a lot of uh, hell, frankly, <laughs> baked into the fear of, of religious belief and understanding. Um, and in my study and in my reading, 
of scripture, um, and even my understanding of, of Israel and then Jewish theology, there what first of all, there wasn't really an understanding of a dualistic afterlife in Jesus' time or at all in, in Jewish thought or theology. Once the religion kind of moved from Israelite to this monotheism, there was this idea of Sheol, which was generally the afterlife, but but it wasn't dualistic and split into if you're good, if you're bad, because there was such an emphasis on um, living in the present and doing right by one another and doing right by God. And then we get into the New Testament, and we have Jesus saying some things. Um, Jesus, who was incredibly hyperbolic, and the word he um, most often uses for how, how we would say, how we would interpret hell is Gehenna. Um, and Gehenna is a proper noun. It's a place. Um, it's a place outside of Jerusalem where, and you, you use the term pauper's grave. Yeah. Yeah, and it was an actual um, trash pit where they would burn trash, right? Because you had to remove refuse that could hurt people um, and get it out of the city and make it disappear. So they would burn trash there. So often when Jesus is saying, hey, it's better for you to burn up in Gehenna, right? There's all these other times where he's hyperbolic, but we tend to take that one incredibly literally and then apply this version of hell we really get from Dante. Um, yes. But more specific, like, you know, even in Jesus' day, the Greco-Romans, we get so, we have so much baggage from the institutionalization of Christianity in, in the Romans' understanding of God that we don't even realize it, right? Why do we think of God as an old white guy sitting on a throne with a beard, right? Zeus. That's why the Jews didn't have that understanding of God. They had no images of God. Um, so we we carry a lot, and having having um, multi gods, but also um, different places where gods reside, and there being an actual fiery place, um, that was a that was kind of starting to to be baked in, and then we see that Dante really took that thought and uh, combined it within Christianity, and then talked about you know the circles, the circles specifically of hell, and that terrified and captivated so many people who ended up taking his poetry incredibly literally to the point where today, you know, I've had people tell me I'm going to hell and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, it, all right. Have, have, a, have a good time. <laughs> I know. Yeah, like, you're telling me that's where all the people I love the most will be? Like, it sounds like it'll be great um, based on what your conception of it is. Anyway, that's kind of how, how I've arrived. But, and not only that, I, how about you talk about how you've arrived and I have a few more ideas. I'd love to hear you talk well, now. Well, <laughs> you know, it's 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 hard. I mean, this is such engraved in our in our cultural Christianity, and I think it's engraved in in that far more than it is in Protestantism or in Methodism. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, and we hold on to it. So so when I when I became a Christian, this was the teaching that I had, that this is a choice we make every day between evil and good, between heaven and hell. It was absolute life of polarities. Um, God, good, Satan, bad. Were they equal forces? Was it kind of that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Star yeah, 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 and the battle's going to come down, right? I mean, we've yeah. got we've got tons of people of faith who are watching uh, what's going on in the Middle yeah, East right now, and are and are excited on the one hand because this is the ushering in of the the end and the the return of of Jesus on the white horse that and feels very all icky. that all that stuff. Hmm. Um, it's, it's why the American fundamentalist Christian community continues to be one of the 
one of the major uh, supporters of of the state, not the state of Israel, not to be political, but but to but to understand that it's grounded in theology. Yes. That I would think that that I feel personally is abhorrent. It's harmful. Uh, yeah. Harmful and not grounded in in scripture or tradition or reason or experience. Uh, <laughs> the four tenets. Tell us how you really the, feel. The, the four tenets of, <laughs> of Wesley's Agreed. teaching. Um, so yeah, I mean, it might my, my I cut my teeth on that understanding, and that uh, I, I went home after being saved on that beach in Pentwater, Michigan, when I knelt down and and said all the right words mm-hmm. and prayed the prayed the believer's prayer. I went home and and told my mother and father that they were going to hell. Uh, I will I I will never ever forget that. The, the audacity of, um, I almost said a bad word, uh, the audacity of, of my telling anyone where mm-hmm. I thought they would be and, and what um, God intended to, to how God, would, uh, God intended to be in relationship with them in this life or in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, I mean, that's where, where I started all this, but I also was not, at all comfortable with it and to, to the degree that I, I needed to go to um, increasingly increasingly open academic environments where I could explore this with other people of Christian faith but also people of other faiths yeah. uh, and to see how much of this is, is cultural and not, not really of, of our faith tradition at all. Yeah. <clears throat> And, you know, part of it, too, is um, yeah, reserving the right to, in a year, be like, hey, this we recorded this podcast, and I, yeah, I don't know, and, and realizing that we both have been in different spaces with how we understand how this works, just at this point, and, and really in my most of my adult life. I have serious questions about the narrative of a God who is supposed to be all-loving, who sends God's only son to earth for the purpose of being tortured and killed as a sacrifice for our sins like that. There's just something about that. It's like, why, what? That doesn't really make sense to me. And it really negates any of Jesus teaching (laughs) any of his life. Um, and the resurrection, which to me, like that's the big deal. So when people are hyper focused on Jesus death, I'm always like, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm always there. And I can understand folks that have been in places of immense suffering and really find um, really find there to be a place of resonance with that. And I think I love that we enter that on our um, once, once a year in our Holy Week story where we enter it deeply and that's kind of our sole focus. But when that's the entirety of someone's theology... Um, when that's when that's what there is, like you must accept Jesus because he died for you. I'm like, I don't think God does that kind of quid pro quo. I'm not really sure. And I have, like I said, you know, because there's a lot that goes along with that. And I find there to be a lot of tools of control, behavior control. When someone hangs hell over your head, you must act this particular way or else you will go to hell. I'm like, I, that's horrifying. And I remember talking to my dad about this and being like, yeah, I remember in third grade being lightly threatened with eternal damnation by nuns. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> you 
know, if you were to do X, Y, or Z, and you know, the list of mortal or venial sins, like what, who is making these distinctions and what are they for? You know, so when, when humans really, I think, try too hard to hold on to it and to understand it and to grapple with it, um, we become, we do, we do our human thing and we make it an idol in and of itself. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I, this might have um, sparked way more questions for y'all than answers. Um, you know, it likely, it likely did for us. We haven't talked at all about the justice for the oppressed part. I am in favor of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the part of this that I would say is I'm not really sure what God's accountability looks like. I'm so happy. I don't always say this, right? But I'm so happy to be a Methodist and a Methodist pastor because like, we're not responsible for saving anyone's souls. That's not our job. We understand very clearly that's not our job. We understand that to be between God and other people with whatever that might look like. That's not even language we use. That said, um, trusting that there's some sort of accountability that's not uh, punitive because I'm not sure that justice is ever really punitive. When I think about what justice might look like in my own life and how we see it reflected within our own justice system, it seems as if the human desire for vengeance takes place over what actual justice might be, what it might be to make amends or to make someone whole, because there are just some things you cannot make someone whole from. And how do we do the best that we can you know, to live lives striving after God? That's, you know, that's a more interesting question to me than how can we punish someone for what they've already done? Yeah, and, and I think it's fundamentally a, um, a misdirected use of justice as mm-hmm. it's used in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, justice in Scripture is right relationship. Yep. And everything that we do ought to be about putting relationships right. What God was doing was putting relationships right. And it did not require us to do that. Yeah. Right? We want, we want to make it about us. Likewise, if we're in a position to write relationships with another or with another group, we're called to do that. And as we often say around here, what is ours to do? Yeah. Yeah, I... Um... I was thinking about this quote after you had some recent sermons about justice being right relationship. And um, Dr. Colmar West says that justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. Right. And, and here's the thing about that is that um, it's a lot harder to figure out how to be in right relationship with someone after something um, grievous has happened, after something serious has happened. And we don't often want to put in the work to do that the hard work of figuring out what, how do I actually make amends? What does accountability actually look like for me? Um, you know, what, what does that mean and look like? And those are things that are uh, a little more fluid. Like we can't always put um, an algebraic equation up and say, you know, X, Y, or Z, an eye for an eye. We, we can't really, we can't really do that in the same way because that doesn't always, if ever, lead to right relationship. 
perhaps we can have a conversation at some point. I've, I've done a class here uh, over the years on the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation. Oh. And uh, I, one of the things that's important to us is we, we tend to, as Protestants, lose, skip pieces of that order. And we think that um, right relationship means restoration. Mm-mm-mm. And it may not. It may not. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. I may forgive you. I may uh, I may restore you to a place where I where I want you uh, connected to my life. It may not include my restoring you to a place where I want you uh, connected to my child, yeah, uh, or my community, or there are things that are not appropriate for you to do any longer because of of your past history of bad behavior. Yeah. Um, so as we, as again, as we often say, everyone is welcome at Chapel Hill. Not every behavior is welcome at Chapel Hill. Yeah, and if there, you know, there are some instances where folks have exhibited behaviors that have said, "Oh, that might not. That's this is not a good place yeah, for you to be at work. this time." Um, we're moving forward, and I think too about your point is that we often think right relationship is individual. It is not. After, you know, after we harm someone, sure, we harm an individual, but that that ripple of harm does not stop at that person, does not stop even at ourselves, right? So right relationship does not have to mean restoration to whatever the relationship was before, um, so much as how can I be in, in the rightest relationship I can with my community, with the earth, with God, like how do how do I get to a place where I can do some of that instead of expecting someone else to forgive me or restore me to something? There is some there is some work we can do there, some really hard hard inner work with the understanding that um, you know God's not up there waiting with a stopwatch. I don't think you know for us to <laughs> okay <laughs> here's your checklist. So much as willing for us to love one another um, and to figure it out and to get to get in right relationship. That's really, that's how God made us. And I think that's how God wants us uh, and, and w- dreams and wishes that for us and gives us gifts and tools and abilities to get there if we are so willing to participate. Well, all right. That, um, it's a honker. That was a lot. Yeah, that was a lot. Uh, yep. Well, feel free to write <laughs> cards and letters to us. Or to Bishop David A. Bard. Yep, the, the heretics at Chapel Hill. <laughs> um, yeah, clearly we're expressing where we are as pastors, and we're interested in hearing where you are. Uh, these are these are often not things that people have have thought about a lot on their own, uh, because because a lot of this is deeply ingrained in our cultural understandings. Yeah. And I would also say, um, you know, sometimes folks will say, well, Chapel Hill isn't super diverse. And in some markers, that might be accurate. One way that we are really diverse is we do have a lot of theological diversity. You know, so we're trained in a particular way that has particular outcomes, and some of which we've arrived at and of our own conclusions and lived experience pastoring with the full acknowledgement that you don't have to be in the same place that we are. You don't have to theologically, like, that does not affect our ability to pastor you. And in fact, it makes for some excellent conversation, and we get to learn so much. So um, we really welcome that theological yeah. diversity. Yeah, we, we can both absolutely love you and the entirety of the congregation and community, even if we don't think you're going to hell. <laughs> 
Well, and as we will talk about on Sunday and as we talked about before, um, we're not a congregation that focuses on right belief. You don't have to say particular things or believe one specific thing in order to be a full member of the community, which is something I really love about our tradition. So I hope you'll join us on Sunday to explore a little bit more. And we'll see what questions we get asked and where we go. Yeah, we're going to be asked about the, the church, right? The church, yeah. The church, universal. The church. The, church. Um, the Methodist church, and then here at Chapel Hill. So we welcome, we welcome your questions.